Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Imagine for a moment being eaten alive by an animal. The jaws of maybe a bear tearing through your flesh or the teeth of a shark ripping you limb from limb, dooming you to a bloody death in the dark waters of the ocean. But if you're already dead, it wouldn't really matter if an animal consumed you, right? I think that either way, the concept of your body being eaten by an animal is a pretty disturbing thought. In 1985, two hunters mysteriously disappeared from a small town in rural Michigan. There was no trace left of the two, and their disappearances sparked a manhunt and investigation that would last for decades. And when authorities finally found out the truth about what happened to those two hunters, the small town of Mayo, Michigan, would be changed forever. You're listening to Murder in America. Our story starts in the suburbs of Detroit in a city called Troy, Michigan. And although our story doesn't end here, it's where one of our victims, David Till, was born. On August 21st, 1958, David had brown hair and green eyes and he was always a sociable kid who loved to spend time outdoors. Because of this love for nature, his mother Kathy put him in Boy Scouts when he was 12 years old. And it was here that he met another 12 year old named Brian Ogden who, like David, loved to spend time in the Michigan wilderness. Brian was born on January 16, 1958, and had light brown hair, brown eyes, and a very friendly-looking face. Brian actually lived in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, which is about a 30-minute drive away from where David lived. But that didn't stop them from being best friends. Once these boys met, they spent a ton of time together and continued their friendship through adolescence and into adulthood. At the time of our story in 1985, David and Brian are now both 27 years old and still as close as ever. Neither of the men are married and just like when they were younger, they still love spending their free time outdoors. And they especially love to hunt during season. So when the two men had a weekend off from their jobs, they decided that they were going to take a little weekend getaway. David's family owned a cabin in White Cloud, Michigan, a community about three hours from where the men lived. David's brothers were going to be at the cabin that weekend, so David and Brian thought it would be fun to spend a few days there. And this cabin was the perfect place to go when you needed a weekend to unwind. It was located in the middle of Manistee National Forest, and it was a great place for deer hunting during the day and having some drinks and letting loose during the night. 
But before the two set off to head to the cabin, they decided to make a stop in Mayo, Michigan to meet an old friend of theirs named Dennis Gallup. Mayo is another city known as a great place for deer hunting, so the two thought it would be nice to see a friend, have some drinks, and hopefully shoot a buck while they were in town. On Friday, November 22nd, 1985, David picked up Brian in his 1981 black Ford Bronco, and they left for Mayo, Michigan to meet their friend Dennis. Dennis was expecting the two men on Friday night, but unfortunately they never showed up. Saturday morning came around, then Saturday night, and David and Brian never came to meet Dennis. He found it strange that his friends never called to cancel their weekend plans, but he probably just assumed that they decided to head to the cabin instead. It was now Sunday morning, and back at the cabin, David's brothers were getting worried because they too hadn't heard from David and Brian all weekend. And this was strange. They assumed that David would have at least called them by now, and the fact that he hadn't led them to believe that something was wrong. David and Brian had planned to leave the cabin after their weekend in the woods on Sunday evening to head back home. But when they didn't show up that night, that's when their families knew something terrible had happened to them. These fears only intensified when neither of the two showed up for work on Monday morning. This was completely out of character for both David and Brian. They would never leave without calling their families and they definitely wouldn't have just skipped work. So their families decided to file missing persons reports on the men. Law enforcement was also told that the two had made plans to drive through Mayo, so that's where they started their investigation. The families of the victims plastered their flyers all over the city and got their stories aired on TV and printed in newspapers. And they even posted a $15,000 reward, hoping that someone would come forward with information. Investigators and family members also conducted numerous searches throughout Mayo and in the surrounding areas. But unfortunately, their searches came up with nothing. Weeks and weeks had passed, and although the search wasn't making a ton of progress, they did have some people come forward with information. One local Mayo resident named Larry Barker saw the story about the two missing hunters on the news and decided to call law enforcement about his encounter with David and Brian. Larry told police that in between the hours of 7 and 8 o'clock on Friday night, two men in a dark Ford Bronco pulled into his driveway, and he was positive that it was the missing men he had just seen on the news. When Larry asked them what they needed, David and Brian said that they were going hunting that weekend and were looking for M55, a truckline highway in northern Michigan. Larry also told police that he could tell that the two of them had been drinking, but that was all of the information that he could offer. Another witness named David Welch came forward as well, claiming that he had seen the men the following night at a local joint in Mayo called Walker's Bar at around 10 p.m. The three had sparked up a conversation, and the two had told Welch that they were staying in a log cabin called Mediters in Luzerne, which was a town about 10 minutes outside of Mayo. The men had been deer hunting in Luzerne during the day and coming into Mayo at night to party. David and Brian also told Welch that they didn't want to meet David's family at the cabin in White Cloud anymore, and they wanted to stay in the area to hunt, drink, and meet women. Welch told the men that they weren't going to have any luck finding women in Mayo, and if they really wanted to find pretty ladies, they were going to have to go to Ski Ranch or Northwoods. This idea of leaving the bar to find women sounded a lot more appealing to Brian than it did David. So Brian decided to leave and go to Northwoods, leaving David at Walker's Bar. But it doesn't seem like Brian had any luck finding women on his journey, because he returned back to the bar shortly after. When Brian returned, David was wasted. So much so that all of the bartenders had cut him off from drinking. The men then paid for their drinks and left around 10 p.m. 
Weeks later, when the investigation of David and Brian's disappearance was taking off, investigators went to the bar to see if they could confirm Welch's statement. And sure enough, Beverly Pasternak, the owner of Walker's Bar, said that the two men had definitely been in there that Saturday night. She recalled David being very drunk and remembered telling her bartenders to cut him off. She also said in a statement that one of the men left their flannel in the bar that night. Beverly went into the back, grabbed the flannel that belonged to David, and gave it to the officer. And I'm sure that as the officer held that flannel in his hands, he felt a certain obligation, a duty calling, demanding him to locate these two men. But at this point, the case was still cold. The flannel was the only item belonging to the two men that police had located in their investigation so far. There was still no sign of the Ford Bronco, no body parts, no money trail. There was literally nothing. It was like they had simply vanished into thin air, and investigators were desperate for more leads. It wasn't until two years later that authorities would finally get a break in the case. In 1987, a new investigator named Kurt Schramm was assigned to David and Brian's case, and he was eager to solve it. Mayo had seen over a dozen missing person cases solved over the past few years, and the case of the two missing hunters was the only case that the department couldn't quite crack. Local law enforcement was positive that a few people in town knew what happened to David and Brian, but they were probably too scared to come forward. And their theory was confirmed one day when they were contacted by a confidential informant who claimed he had some information about the two hunters who disappeared back in 1985. This anonymous informant tells officers that he was at a birthday party one evening at a bar called O'Shea's in Michigan when he overheard a conversation amongst a group of seven men. And amongst these guys were two particular men that held bad reputations in Mayo. Their names were the Duvall brothers, and just about everyone in town knew not to mess with them. Accompanying them at the table that night was the informant's brother-in-law. The men were engaging in typical locker room talk, conversing about the women they'd slept with and different fights they had been in, when all of a sudden, the Duvall brothers started to talk about the two hunters that had gone missing. The informant was immediately intrigued at what he was hearing, and instantly tuned in. And what he heard next was something he would never forget. As he listened, the anonymous man claimed he heard somebody say that one of the Duvall brothers, a man named Junior, had gotten into an altercation with David and Brian that night at Linker's Bar. After a few words were exchanged between the men, things got physical, and apparently, Junior got beaten up pretty badly by the hunters. After this, Junior then left the bar and went home to tell his brothers about the two men who were causing trouble and how they had just beaten him up. According to the story, two of Junior's brothers became absolutely livid. Again, these guys were known around town for causing trouble and starting fights, and they were not about to let David and Brian get away with this, so they drove over to Linker's bar to confront them. According to the informant, the Duval brothers claimed that they had led David and Brian out of the bar and beat them to death. While he's hearing all of this at the bar, the brothers are apparently laughing and bragging about their crime, with one of them even saying, quote, you should have seen the expression on one of their faces when we killed the other one. End quote. Just when he thought he heard the worst of the story, one of the brothers said, quote, We fed them both to our pigs. Investigators were shocked but excited about their new lead, but they wanted to confirm that David and Brian had indeed been at the bar in question that night, so they contacted one of the bartenders at Linkers, a woman named Cindy Steinhurst. When they questioned Cindy, she told investigators that she did recall seeing David and Brian at the bar that night. Even though this was quite a while after their disappearance, she was positive that it was David and Brian because the men that night had been arguing pretty aggressively over who would pay the tab. Apparently, Brian wanted to pay for their drinks, but David refused. 
and Brian told Cindy, the bartender, that if she took David's money, he would kick her ass. Cindy was obviously taken aback by his statement and complained to her manager about the two men. But even with the informant's story and the witness who placed David and Brian at the bar that night, there still wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. Keep in mind, investigators still haven't located a car, and they obviously haven't found their bodies. At this point, everything is just rumors and hearsay. So, investigators up the reward money to $100,000, and they continue to keep David and Brian's missing persons flyers around town. And the flyers read this. Reward! Hunter's disappearance still a mystery. On Friday, November 22nd, 1985, David Till of Troy, Michigan, and Brian Ogden of St. Clair Shores left their friends and family for a weekend of hunting. They have never returned. It is believed that the last sighting of the two men was in the Houghton Lake, Mayo area of Michigan. No trace of the men has ever been recovered. Their 1981 Ford Bronco, weapons, clothing, or the bodies. The $100,000 reward is being offered for information, which leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons involved in their disappearance. It is believed that the two men may have been killed, possibly after an argument in a local northern Michigan bar, and their vehicle destroyed. After seven long years with no justice, David and Brian's families just want answers. The mystery was eating at them day by day. The Argus Press, a local newspaper, published an article about the missing hunters, titled, Seven years after leaving for hunting trip, two Michigan men still missing. And this is how the article read. The mothers of two men who disappeared seven years ago are renewing their annual ritual of hope, even though not a single trace of the men has ever been found. David's mom said, quote, It's like MIAs. You know they're gone, but you can just never be sure. You've just got to have some kind of proof to grieve the loss and put an end to it. End quote. Later on in the article, they reference the suspects, and Detective Schramm says, quote, We've just been unable to prove that they're connected to the two. Everything is on hold pending discovery of the vehicle, vehicle parts, bodies, or other evidence. We believe that there are certainly enough people that know what happened. And when they're ready to come forward, we're ready to talk with them. End quote. And the article ends with this. Both women realize their sons are probably dead, but still cling to the hope that they're still alive. Quote, you can't stop being a little hopeful, Till said. As long as we don't have any proof, there will always be some hope. End quote. Wanting to give the family some answers and desperately wanting to finally solve this cold case, officers at the time then decided to take a deeper look into the Duvall brothers. What they did, who they hung out with, their past records, everything. And after a little digging, they find out that almost all of the brothers had spotty records, with rap sheets including charges for stealing cars and even incredibly violent cases of domestic assault. But of course, although these offenses are bad, they don't make someone a murderer. One thing that officers found interesting was that one of the Duvall brothers did own and have some very large pigs on his property. And they instantly had flashbacks back to the story that they had been told years earlier. The anonymous informant's claim about the brothers feeding David and Brian's bodies to their pigs could actually hold some credibility. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world could pigs help dispose of a human body? Well, unfortunately, pigs are more than capable of consuming humans. And when they do consume a human body, they eat almost the entire corpse. For example, in 2012, a man in Oregon named Terry Garner went out to feed his pigs and never came back home. When his family went out to the styes to check on him, they peered inside of the pig pen and made a gruesome discovery. 
Terry had been eaten, and the only parts of Terry's body that were left in the mud were small bone fragments and his dentures. His family isn't sure whether or not the pigs attacked him or if Terry suffered some sort of medical problem inside of the pen, rendering him unconscious. But all they know is that his pigs ate him almost entirely. Shockingly, this isn't the only case of pigs consuming humans whole. In 2013, a mob boss was thrown into a pig pen while he was still alive and was eaten to death by hogs while still conscious. In 2019, the same thing happened to a woman in Russia when she suffered a seizure inside of a pig enclosure. Once again, almost none of these bodies were left by the pigs after their feasts. And lastly, we just have to mention this. There's the story that a lot of us probably already know of deranged serial killer Robert Picton and how he allegedly fed his victims to his pigs. But one thing to note is that pigs usually can't eat all of you. It's difficult for them to digest human hair, teeth, and big bones like the femur. And it's extremely likely that remnants of the eaten person would still remain inside of the pig pen for a period of time after consumption. But in another gruesome twist, there was a rumor going around town that led investigators to believe that there would be absolutely no trace of David and Brian in the pig pens. And this rumor was that the Duval brothers put David and Brian's corpses in a wood shredder before feeding them to the pigs. This would ensure that all parts of the body were eaten, teeth, hair, and femurs included. But again, there was absolutely no evidence to prove this, just rumors. In the decade after David and Brian's disappearance, these rumors had gotten back to the Duval brothers and they were starting to get angry thinking someone in their close friend group was a snitch. They even made certain remarks to each other, constantly stating that they believed that there's a snake in our woodpile. And yeah, lots of people around town were talking about the crime, but the only snakes in the woodpile were the brothers themselves. They were the ones gallivanting around town, loudly boasting about their crimes in crowded places. And most big secrets don't stay hidden forever. In 1998, over a decade after Brian and David went missing, a new detective was placed in the department and assigned to their case. His name was Detective Sergeant Robert Lisneski, and his first instructions on the job were to try and solve David and Brian's missing person case. This was a lot of pressure for Robert, considering the case had been cold for 13 years. But he was more than ready to take on the challenge. Plus, his colleagues had gathered a ton of information over the years, including huge binders full of pages detailing the case and information on the Duval brothers. As Detective Lesneski is looking through the files, he keeps seeing a certain name pop up, Barbara Boudreaux. Several people had come forward over the years saying that Barbara had spent a lot of time with the Duval brothers back in the 80s, and they were sure that she'd have some information on the case. And detectives start to wonder, if Barbara knew something, why hadn't she come forward over the last 15 years? So they head over to her house to ask her just that. Detective Lisneski knocks on Barbara's front door. And when she opens up, she is shocked to see a police officer. Lisneski introduces himself and lets her know that he's there to seek information about the missing hunters from 1985. A look of pure terror washes over Barbara's face and she starts to shake and tremble at the door. She tells the officer to leave her property immediately. And as she's shutting the door, she yells, You better leave, you're going to get me killed. And just before she can shut the door, Detective Lisneski slips his foot inside. 
Although this is obviously against protocol when questioning potential witnesses, Detective Lesneski knew that Barbara had information about the case, and he wasn't about to let this lead slip through his fingers. So, he calmed Barbara down and tried to start up a conversation with her in an attempt to build up a rapport and gain her trust. Luckily, after some coaxing and smooth talk, Barbara let her guard down a little. She and the detective had a superficial conversation about the case, but she made sure to tell him, I will tell you some of the story, but not all of it. You will never get the truth out of me. Detective Lesneski listened intently to every word of Barbara's story, making sure not to push her harder than she was ready to be pushed. Barbara had disclosed that she only knew some of the information about the case and that she would never be able to help him much with the investigation. Lesneski knew this wasn't true, but he thanked her for her time and respectively left her residence. This would only be the first of many times that Lesneski and Barbara would meet to discuss the case. Detective Lesneski spent the next few years of his life periodically dropping in and visiting Barbara, each time hoping to get a bit more information. On an episode of Cold Case Files called The Missing Hunters, Detective Lesneski states, I never really knew how far I could go with her, but I recognized this, that I didn't want to lose her. I would take whatever I could get. And with each visit, Barbara would reveal a little more about the case than she did on the last. But she always told the detective that she had heard this information and that she wasn't completely sure of it. But in actuality, Barbara knew everything. And she wasn't withholding this information to mess with the investigation or because of her loyalty to the Duvall brothers. She genuinely was scared for her life. It wasn't until four years after Lisneski's first visit to Barbara that she finally told him what happened that night on November 23rd, 1985. And this was her story. Barbara and her friend Ronald Emery, who was at that point deceased, were at Linker's Bar on that fateful Saturday night. They were actually there celebrating because Ronald had just shot his first buck of the season. She and Ronald had been playing pool, having some drinks, when they saw David and Brian enter through the front doors of the bar. The two approached Barbara, wanting to join the game and play for some money, but she declined. She said that the hunters were rubbing against her and acting nasty, so she told them to leave her alone. After a long night of drinking, David and Brian were quite intoxicated, and it was said that the two were getting into altercations with the bar's patrons. It was at this point when brothers Coco, Jr., and Rex Duvall walked through the front doors and instantly took notice of the two rowdy hunters. They were not happy with the fact that these two men from out of town were in their bar talking to their women and causing trouble. So Coco Duvall walks over to the bar's landline phone to place a call, and we assume he was calling his other brothers because he tells the person on the other end of the line that he needs some backup. It was shortly after this phone call that Barbara and Ronald left the bar to go back to Barbara's house on Mapes Road, a location less than a mile down the road from Linker's bar. Soon after getting home, Barb and Ronald hear a commotion out on the street in front of her house. She said that she could tell a fight was taking place because she heard someone scream, You are dead, you rotten motherfucker. Next, she said that Ronnie went by himself to see what was going on. And when he came back, he told her that the Duval brothers were beating the hunters to death. And while he was saying all of this, Barbara said that she could hear the sound of metallic pings, as if someone was hitting something with an aluminum baseball bat. Detective Lesneski took Barbara's statement, which was a great lead, but not exactly what he was looking for. You see, since they had no trace of David and Brian's bodies, or their car, the prosecution wanted an eyewitness, and the only eyewitness was Ronald Emery, who was now dead. 
But regardless, Detective Lesneski had heard and transcribed enough of Barbara's story to bring it to a district attorney, and she was then brought into the station so that she could repeat her story as a statement. Finally, on April 17, 2003, Barbara sat in court to give her testimony. But to the surprise of everyone, her story was a little different than what she first told detectives. Feeling the pressure and obligation to tell the truth in court, Barbara stops mid-testimony and confesses that she saw everything. And this is how the story actually unfolded. When she and Ronald heard the commotion outside of her home, they both headed outside to see what was happening. The two walked down her driveway and saw the group of men at the end of the street fighting. Wanting to keep their distance, Barbara and Ronald hid behind a tree and watched everything unfold. She said that there were about five men crowding around David and Brian, and that Coco and Junior Duvall were violently beating them. Both David and Brian were on the ground at this point, covered in blood. David, nearly beaten to a pulp, managed to get up on his knees. He then looked up at the men around him, threw his hands in the air, and pleaded, Oh my God, somebody help us. And these would be David's very last words. Because right after that, Coco Duval walks over to his truck, pulls out an aluminum bat, and starts to beat David with it, screaming, You're a dead motherfucker. Junior Duvall then kicks and stomps on David's lower body, while Coco hits him in the head with the bat. Blood spatter from David's head colored the white snow a dark shade of maroon that night on Mapes Road. Just imagine the sound of an aluminum bat hitting bone, echoing on that dark road. It sends a chill down your spine. Barbara said that after many hits, David's head exploded. In her cold case files interview, Barbara says, quote, His head popped like a pumpkin. It sounded just like the drop of a pumpkin. End quote. It was said that Brian had a look of terror on his face after watching his best friend's head get beaten in. And his fight or flight instincts were sent into overdrive. He knew that he probably wouldn't be able to fight off five men. So he stood up and made a run for it. But after Brian takes off, the men aren't far behind him, and they eventually catch up, knocking him back down to the ground. They grab him by his shirt and drag him back through the snow, laying him next to David, who is already dead. Brian looks up at the men and says, you killed my friend. The men then stand him up on his feet, and one of the Duvall brothers points to Brian's crotch and yells, look at that, he pissed himself. He had been so scared watching his friend get beaten to death that he had urinated. What a sad and terrifying last few moments of life. The Duvalls then throw Brian to the ground and proceed to stomp and kick him to death. After the bloodbath ended, Barbara and Ronald rushed back to her home, completely shocked at what they had just witnessed. A few minutes later, they hear a knock at their front door. When they open it up, it's the Duval brothers. I can imagine that at the time, they were covered in blood after having just beaten two individuals to death only minutes before. They turn to Barbara and tell her, quote, You saw nothing. You heard nothing. We know you and your family. Pigs have to eat, too. The Duvall brothers would allegedly go on to tell many people around town that after they killed the two men, they placed them in their trucks, drove them to their property, and put their bodies into a wood shredder. And in an instant two best friends were turned to millions of pieces of body parts. After they were broken down by the machinery, the brothers threw the remains into the pig pen so that their animals could feast on their victims, clearing out any trace 
of David and Brian. Barbara did not take these threats from the Duval brothers lightly. She had witnessed with her own two eyes what they were capable of, and she did not want to risk it. At one point in Barbara's life, she had had a relationship with a county sheriff, and she said that she told him about what happened. But for whatever reason, the sheriff didn't do anything with the information. Anytime cops did come by Barbara's place to ask her about the hunters, she said the Duval brothers somehow found out about it and repeatedly threatened her, telling her that she had pretty granddaughters and allegedly shooting and running over two of her dogs. These threats were enough to keep her quiet over the years. That was until she met Detective Lisneski. With Barbara's incriminating testimony, Coco and Junior Duvall were arrested for the murders of David Till and Brian Ogden on May 13, 2003. And finally, after 18 long years, their families would get justice. But investigators knew that this wasn't going to be an easy trial. For one, they still had no bodies and no car. And even though the men allegedly fed their victims' bodies to their pigs, there was no way that there would still be evidence inside of the pig pen, almost 20 years later. They also never found the Ford Bronco belonging to David. Their case would have to be mostly circumstantial, but after the men were arrested, many people would come forward with additional information on the Duvall brothers. Here are just a few of them. One man named Edward Levere testified that he was very close with the brothers at one point and knew that they would often buy and sell junk cars, which is an interesting fact given that David's car had disappeared. It's speculated that they took the car apart and sold all of its parts. Edward had even lived with the brothers for a period of time. And when he was late on a payment for one month, he said that Coco threatened to kill him just like he did David and Brian. He also said that Junior told him that, quote, family sticks together. A woman named Connie Sundberg also came forward, saying that she lived with Coco Duvall for a period of time, and that on the night in question, Coco came home drunk, saying that he killed someone, and told her that if she ever said anything, he would kill her too. She also said that on one day around Thanksgiving, which was around the time of the year that Brian and David went missing, she remembered seeing a black Ford Bronco in the driveway, and one of the brothers saying, Get that fucking thing out of here before we all get in trouble. And Catherine Slowinski, who dated Junior Duvall's son, was absolutely positive that Coco and Junior were responsible for the murders. She allegedly had held a conversation with Junior about the murders years after they happened and stated that Junior had told her the two hunters had stolen a buck that the brothers had shot earlier that day. And when they ran into the boys at the bar that night, they decided to beat them to death. This was an intriguing story because no one had ever heard that hunting had anything to do with the murders. And if that story is true, it's sad to think about how hunting, which was both of their passions and what brought them to Mayo in the first place, would be the very thing that led to their death. It's also interesting to think that all of these people had known about what the Duvall brothers did on that chilly November weekend, and yet not a single person came forward with information about the crime for all of those years. Did the Duvall brothers really have that strong of a hold on the community of Mayo? Were they so threatening, so intimidating, that the townspeople were okay with letting them get away with murder? We just don't have those answers. But the amount of people that came forward after the brothers' arrests made the prosecution a little more confident in their case. At the end of the day, the murder trial would heavily rely on the testimony of Barbara, the eyewitness who watched it all unfold. But there are some people that question the validity of Barbara's testimony stating that she was very dishonest at the beginning of the investigation, which I would say is a pretty compelling argument. 
But Barbara's claims are backed up by other witness accounts, and she also never accepted the $100,000 reward money offered for information in the case. It is extremely rare for people to be convicted of murder when a body is never found. A lot of times, without physical evidence, the district attorney won't even bring the case to court. But not in this case. On November 12, 2003, a jury of their peers agreed with the witness testimony in the prosecution's case. And after just two hours of deliberation, both Coco and Junior Duvall were arrested for the first-degree murders of David Till and Brian Ogden, and they were sentenced to life in prison, where they still remain to this day. At the end of the day, could these sordid details really be true? Could the Duvall brothers really have ground up David and Brian in a wood shredder and fed their mangled remains to their hogs? Either way, take this episode as a warning. When you're in a small town, at a small bar, always keep one eye open. Drink your drinks, laugh and be merry, and get out of there with your life. Because you never know who you may encounter, who might want to fight you, who may have some sort of dark, twisted side waiting to be unleashed. Because... After all, pigs have to eat too. <laughs> you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Murder in America. It's Colin here. And Courtney. We cannot thank everybody online enough for the enormous support we've received lately, and we're glad that you guys enjoyed the episodes. Courtney, how's it made you feel? I've loved it. We love you guys so much. This is Courtney's dream. This is my dream. So thank you, everybody who's out there listening. If you'd like to, follow our socials. At Murder in America. Uh, my personal is at Colin Brown. And Court Shan. If you want to become a patron, we have bonus episodes, graphic, uncensored crime content on there, too. I just cannot believe how amazing all of you online are. And you have to look forward to next week's episode. It is a crazy story. And at the end of the day, I wonder where David and Brian ended up. Were they eaten by pigs? I'd like to ask them that question. It makes you wonder. The dead don't talk. Or do they? See you on the next one, everybody. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.